You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. Well, one thing I just want to say before we get started, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the times that we're in, and I know many of us uh, can be fearful about the time that we're in, but if you just look around, I mean, we have, we have people here together, right? There's some hope that, that we're, we're starting to meet together. If you remember when this started, there was a time where you couldn't find toilet paper, and now we're decorating with it here on the, on the stage. So, sorry, whoever's doing the decoration, I'm sorry. Uh, it does kind of look like toilet paper, but... Uh, but anyway, so no, there's, there's a hope, and, and our hope isn't in uh, the government, though we are, and we just did, we're praying for the government, we're praying for uh, a healing, we're praying for this disease to be over, we're trusting in and hoping for uh, a cure to, to COVID, uh, we're, we're hoping for uh, relational reconciliation, we're, we're hoping for all of these things, but ultimately, our hope is in Christ, right? our, hope, our hope is in Christ, and we know, we know the ending, we know the story, uh, and so today, the passage that we're going to look at is a reminder of uh, the work that Christ has done. As we're going through this series on the Holy Spirit called Encounter, we're going to look at what I believe is um, probably one of the, I would say, the most important works uh, of the Holy Spirit. So today, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Um, I think if you're at home, it'll just pop up virtually and you'll be able to see it if you're here you have to physically either have a device or a bible but uh, John chapter 16 we're going to be in verses 7 through 15 this is God's holy word nevertheless Jesus says I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you and when he comes He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Fathers, we look at your word today. Um, just, I'm, I'm freshly aware that the power is not in the preaching, the power is in your word. The power is not in my wisdom or my wit, uh, but the power is in your Holy Spirit speaking and convicting us of the truth of your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would do that today. That Holy Spirit, you would convict, shine a light on Christ, and that you would shine a light on the work of the gospel, that we would leave this place changed and shaped and molded for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, we're in John chapter 16, and there are 21 chapters in John. So that means we're roughly 76.2% of the way through the book of John. All you kids at home, that's math. Uh, 16, 20 firsts of the way through John. So we're a, we're a long way into John so far. We're, we're in uh, deep into Jesus' ministry. At this point in the book, we've already seen uh, the wedding at Cana. We've seen Jesus talking with Nicodemus. We've seen healings and feedings and had accounts of all kinds of teaching that Jesus has done. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been with the disciples for almost three years. He's been teaching in public and teaching his disciples in private, teaching them all that the Father tells him to teach. And it's at this point in the story that we see today's passage. We see Jesus' love for his disciples and his desire that he could teach them more. But they're not ready, he says. And he knows that his time is short. In just a little more than a chapter, Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, and he's going to be crucified. And it seems like the main point of what Jesus is saying is something like this. There's, there's still so much you need to learn, disciples, and so much that I want to teach you, but you're not ready. My time is short, and so it's a comfort to me and should be to you that the helper, the Paracletus, is coming. It is better for you, Jesus says, that I go away. There's probably a bunch of movie scenes that fit here, but the one that comes to mind for me uh, is, is from Star Wars, right? And it's, it's Obi-Wan, and, and so far he's, he's been teaching Luke about the Force, and he's been teaching him a little bit about his father, and he's been imparting wisdom to him. And Obi-Wan knows there's so much more that Luke needs to learn. But during that epic battle with Darth Vader, Obi-Wan decides to surrender himself to the Force because he knows he'll be able to, to teach Luke some more. Now, that's just an analogy. That's not what's going on here, but that kind of comes to mind. That's what Jesus is. He's thinking, there's so much that I want to teach you. There's so much more that you have to learn, but I'm not going to be the one to teach you. And you can hear it. You can hear Jesus wishing that he could stay, but knowing and telling his disciples that it's better for them if he goes away. Now let's stop for a second, and let's remember who the disciples think Jesus is. Let's, let's stop for a second and think, who, who do they think is talking to them right now? Well, John 4, the woman at the well says, Come see a man who told me everything I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Mark 1 tells us that, that people marveled because he taught like no one else had ever taught. He didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught as one who had authority. This was the teacher, the rabbi, who did signs and wonders like no one had ever seen. He raised the dead to life. He made blind see. He made lame walk. These people thought that this was, and he was, the Messiah. He taught things in his own words. He showed them the Father. So it's not hard to see that the disciples are sad that Jesus is talking about going away, that they're confused. Like, wait, wait, you're supposed to be the Messiah who's coming to establish Israel and to overthrow the Romans. What are you talking about going away? And Jesus says, not only am I going away, it's going to be better for you if I go away. Do you believe that? How many times have you or I thought, man, if Jesus was just here with me right now, if he could just, when I was studying this, I definitely felt this way. If, if Jesus could just explain what he was talking about, 
I would understand this so much better if Jesus was just here with me or if, if Jesus could just ride along with me to, to work, man, it would be so much easier to serve him and to share the gospel uh, with people. If Jesus was here every Sunday, I would just be so much more uh, equipped and ready to go out into the world. How many times have we thought that? How many times have we been like doubting Thomas? If only I could see his hands and his feet and his side, then I would believe then all of our unanswered questions would be answered. Well, not according to Jesus. Jesus says it's better for them, the disciples, and for us that he goes away. How, how is that possible? How in the world is that possible? How is it better if he goes away? I'm glad that you asked. Jesus says it right here in verse 7. He says, the reason it's better for him to go away is that the Holy Spirit, the helper, that word parakletos, he will come and he will only come when Jesus goes back to the Father. So the answer that Jesus gives for why it's better that he goes away is that the helper will come. And I think this is why later in the passage, verses 12 and 15, he comments on the Holy Spirit guiding the disciples in all truth. I think Jesus is saying, you think I'm the one with truth. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and it's going to be better because not only is he one person that's going to be able to teach physically in one area at a time, the Holy Spirit's going to be able to guide you all into truth. And it's not new truth. It's the same truth that I've been telling you. And Jesus says, because the Holy Spirit's going to take from what he's been given, which he's been given what's mine, and what's mine is the Father. So Jesus is, I mean, there's a great Trinitarian passage right here. Jesus is saying, all that the Father has is mine, and I'm going to tell it all to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to, going to tell you. So the, basically what Jesus is saying is, it's better for you if I leave, because the Holy Spirit is going to continue this work, this teaching work, this discipling work, that I've started. Jesus says it's better that the Holy Spirit comes. And so uh, I'm sure you're asking, well, what does the Holy Spirit do that Jesus can't do? How is having the Holy Spirit better than having Jesus physically with them? And I'm glad that you're asking all these good questions. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going we're gonna to look at, and I'm going to structure the message today with the same three actions that Jesus gives us here in our passage um, that the Holy Spirit does. And I'm going to say, like I did at the beginning, I'm going to submit to you that I think this work, this three-part work that the Holy Spirit does is the most important work that the Holy Spirit does. Of all the functions he does, I think today's passage highlights the most important. Without this function, everything else we talk about is meaningless as a church. The main function that the Holy Spirit does is that he glorifies Christ by convicting people of the truth of the gospel. The main work, I think, is outlined here, and we're going to look at the three parts, is that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ by convicting people of the truth of the gospel. We'll look at the three ways he does this, um, and, and we'll... we'll talk about that. But before we do, I want to highlight one word, and that word is convict. Do you see that here in the passage? Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he will, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin. That word is convict, not convince, convict. And what does that 
What does that word mean? It's not an arguing. The Holy Spirit's not going to argue the truth of the gospel with us. He's going to convict us. And what does that word convict mean? Well, it's the indicative future active word, meaning he will convict. And convict means to show or to reveal or to bring light on. And it's not just to show or reveal just anything. It's particularly used in the Bible to show light on something that you've done wrong and call somebody to repentance. So it's like you have a barbecue stain on your shirt, right? And your wife points it out. She's not just like, hey, barbecue stain, right? She's pointing it out to you so that you change your shirt or you wash it or you do something, right? That's what the Holy Spirit's doing here. He's making visible. He will expose. He will shine light on things that are wrong and call to repentance. I mean, it's, and here's another analogy. It's like when you're using Google Maps and you take a wrong turn, right? That, that map reveals to you that you're not on that nice path anymore, and then it'll recalculate and recalculate. Sometimes it takes you where you don't want to go, but this is, the Holy Spirit's not Google Maps, uh, but like that, he's revealing, he's showing when we're wrong. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world about three things, and here they are. But three things Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world about are sin, righteousness, and judgment. So if you're taking notes at home, if you're taking notes here, I don't have, normally I'd use alliteration, normally I have three points that, that start with the same letter or, you know, I don't know. Uh, anyway, today it's just, we're just following the passage. Jesus laid it out, so we're just going to follow these three. I'm going to guess that Jesus is a better preacher uh, than I am. So we're just going to look at these three points, sin, righteousness, and judgment about sin. The Holy Spirit will show or reveal to the world concerning sin. What does that mean? Well, as you can imagine, there are many thoughts that scholars have, and they're actually, when I was studying this, uh, one, of, one of my favorite, R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on John says, he has no idea what this passage means. So before we get started, let me just say, there's somebody that I respect that knows the Bible better than me, says he has no idea what this passage means. I'm going to ask you to study on your own after I give you my view of what I think the passage means because there's guys out there who are like, nah, I don't know. I don't know what it means. But what does this mean? Well, you can imagine, that, uh, as I said, there's many thoughts, and the word here for sin is singular. So if you look at the word sin here in the Greek, it's not sins. It's not saying um, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world about sins. It's the Holy Spirit will convict the world about a sin. And if you keep reading, which I, I always recommend is a great hermeneutical practice, is if you're studying a passage, keep reading, because often the author will explain what they're talking about later, or you'll have contextual clues that will give you an idea of what, what this passage is about. And here Jesus says, because you can picture the disciples saying, what are you talking about? Verse 9, he says, well, about sin, because they do not believe in me. Many scholars believe that Jesus is speaking about his immediate death and resurrection and that many people will not believe the resurrection, but the Holy Spirit will convict them of this sin. And I agree with this view. I think that's, what, I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit's going to convict you about a wrong. He's going to convict you about a sin. What is that sin? Well, it's answered in they don't believe in me. Well, what's about to happen? Jesus is about to to, to die and about to raise again. And he's saying the ultimate sin that's about to happen is that people will not believe. 
But similar to prophecy texts, I think it's also, there's a, a right then application, and then I think there's a broader and future application, something happening farther down the road. And I think that's also in view here in this passage. Jesus is speaking about his immediate death and resurrection and that some people immediately thereafter won't believe, but the Holy Spirit at work in the disciples and those people will convict the world and will show these people the error in their way and call them to repentance. But I also believe there's a broader application. This is still what the Holy Spirit does today. If you believe the gospel today, it's not because you were smart enough. It's not because you heard it clearly explained. If you believe today, it's not even really because it's a decision that you made. Think about it. How many of us who believe today would say, it's like the lights were turned on? Like the Hank Williams song, I Saw the Light. Or Amazing Grace, I Once Was Blind and Now I See. It's only because the Holy Spirit worked to reveal it to you, to convict you of your sin. And this convicting is not an explanation. It's not a whispering in your ear the deep theological truths, but more like when you turn the lights on. It's like being able to see the cleanliness of your room when you turn the light on. The lights in your room don't explain how messy your room is. You just see it, right? You turn on the lights and you see my boys turn on the light and they, they see stuff everywhere. Actually, it's my, my girls more than my boys. Sorry, girls. Uh, they see the Legos all over the floor. Well, here's another analogy for you kids at home and, and for us here. If you've seen the movie Madagascar, right, and there's this scene where the, the animals from the Central Park Zoo, they've escaped. They hop onto this cargo ship and they escape to Madagascar and they come out and they're, they're meeting wild animals. And so they're all getting introduced to this big kingdom of lemurs. And Marty, the zebra, introduces his best friend, Alex the lion. Right? And Alex is used to doing this like dance uh, at the Central Park Zoo where he poses and then he ends with this, this roar. And so here in Madagascar, Alex, who hasn't eaten for a long time, hasn't eaten meat, he's starting to look around and these animals look like potential food sources to him. And so he gets done with his dance and he roars and it's like a roar they've never heard before like wow that that really sounded like a roar and you see Alex and he's got this like crazed look in his face and he's looking out and there's this crowd of lemurs jumping up and down and in Alex's view from his perspective they look like giant steaks jumping up and down with hands and legs and he starts you know licking his licking his chops and the music cuts out as and then as the camera pans back to Alex who has his teeth sunk into his best friend, Marty the zebra, Alex has his teeth sunk into Marty's butt. And he says, you're biting my butt. And later, it isn't until later in the movie that Alex comes to his senses, and it is like the lights are turned on. Right? He's seeing meat. He's seeing, he's seeing these, these food sources. But then, just instantaneously, the lights turn on and he sees, he notices, oh my gosh, this is my, this is my friend. And he apologizes to his friend. He repents of his sin. And this is similar to what the Holy Spirit does. This is similar to what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us. He shows us our sin. He opens our eyes to the truth of our sin. 
But notice while he does this for all of our sin as Christians in a process called sanctification, what's mainly in view here is one conviction, one sin. And the major revelation that the Holy Spirit does is to show us the greatest sin for which we are guilty, and that is unbelief in Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He shows us who Jesus is. That he is God himself, fully God, fully man. That he was killed, that he died, and that he rose from the dead three days later. The Holy Spirit is the one who shows us this and shows us the great sin, the greatest sin that we have rejected that, that we have not believed that. Some who are hearing this message today are in the same place of great sin. You don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You don't believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of that sin today. And what sin is not connected to that great sin? You can't have God without Jesus. There are so many other monotheistic religions out there. There are plenty of people who have their own ideas of how to live a fulfilling life. But this all centers around Jesus and who Jesus is. He is the key. If you don't have Jesus, you don't believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, fully God, fully man. If you don't believe that, you don't have Christianity. You don't have truth. So what about you? Are you trusting in Jesus today? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in his resurrection from the dead? May the Holy Spirit convict us if we are guilty of this great sin. And may he call us to repentance. That's the first. So the first way the Holy Spirit works is he convicts us of sin, about sin. The second is about righteousness. Now, when I first read this, I felt like Olaf from Frozen 2. This will all make sense when I'm older. Right? I read this and I was like, wow, I do not know about the second point. Uh, And I had, again, R.C. Sproul speaking to me saying, I don't know what this passage means. Um, But I trusted the Lord. I continued to study. There are other commentaries and other commentators who who have thoughts. uh, And so I was able to, to pull from those. But this is a confusing phrase. Right, he says about righteousness, or sorry, about, about, yeah, about righteousness. And then he tries to explain it to his disciples in verse 10. And I don't think it got any clearer as I was reading it initially. But I was helped by thinking through this process. So think with me about this. If we remember what that word convict means. Convict means to shine a light on, right? To show something. And not just to show it, but to show it with calling to repentance. So you're showing an error and calling to repentance. So what, what error would there be around righteousness? And then verse 10, how would, how would Jesus' response in verse 10 help? Well, let's read verse 10. He says, about righteousness, because I am going to the Father... And you will no longer see me. Thanks, Jesus. That really clears it up. I got it. Just kidding. But think about this for a second. So conviction about something wrong, calling for repentance, Jesus going 
to the Father, you'll no longer see me. Well, what is righteousness? How about let's go there, and then maybe we'll come back to this. What does righteousness mean? Well, righteousness is right standing before God. Right? When it's used in Scripture, it's right standing before God. Primarily, that's how it's used. So, so here, we see right standing before God. We see that the, the crucifixion's about to happen. And so maybe, maybe it's the right standing before God of people, right? Is that maybe what he's talking about? Well, as you think about this, I think the right standing before God that's in view here is Jesus himself. See, the Jewish leaders were about to crucify Jesus. They thought they were about to do one of the most holy acts that they could do is to take this heretic who said he was God, this heretic who was teaching what they thought was this new religion, and they thought the most righteous thing that they could do was put him to death. They didn't think he had right standing before God. They thought they had right standing before God because they had the scribes and the Pharisees. They had kept the law and extra laws that they had put on top of there. And so they thought the most holy thing they could do is put Jesus to death. And what Jesus says is the way that he would be vindicated, the way that he would prove that he had right standing before God was his resurrection. And so here, I think what Jesus is saying, he's saying this Holy Spirit is going to convict the world about righteousness because the world thinks, I don't, Jesus says this, I don't have right standing before God, but the world will soon see through the Holy Spirit that my resurrection proves that I have right standing before God. The disciples were convicted that Jesus was who he said he was because of the resurrection. That meant God was pleased with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit still does that today and still convicts us of that truth and of our false righteousness. The Holy Spirit today shows us what it really takes to be right before God. And listen how this commentary and how this commentator on the book of John says it. He says, The Holy Spirit will expose this suppressed guilt as he did at Pentecost. You put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. And God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Acts 2, 24 and 36. They were cut to the heart, Acts 2, 37. Jesus is going to the Father, he says. A journey proved by the resurrection exposed their guilt in having him crucified. Thus, their flimsy claim to righteousness is torn aside, as are all standards of righteousness which rationalize our guilty rebellion against God and our refusal to acknowledge Jesus as the righteous one, the embodiment of everlasting righteousness. This is what the Holy Spirit does He did and he does. The Holy Spirit shows us that Jesus is the righteous one. And the Holy Spirit breaks down all of our misconceptions about right standing before God. That's why any religion that teaches you can be right before God by obedience is a damning religion. You can never be good enough. God throughout the Bible is clear. No one is righteous. No one does good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no way that you could be good enough. The Bible says all of our good deeds are like menstrual cloth before the Lord. They're like diapers. 
It's not a sweet attempt at loving God that he looks at sweetly and says, oh, isn't he or she cute? They're trying their best. No, it's a complete and utter offense to God when we try to earn our way by good deeds. It's like but worse. It's like the adulterer patting their spouse on the back and saying, I'm sorry. Or the slave owner patting the slave on the back after years of cruel treatment and saying, my bad, bro. See, we've heard this message too often that God is loving, so we have this misconception of what love is, and we personify God to think that if he's loving, he has to fit into our idea of what loving is. That's not the way it works. We fit into his reality, not the other way around. God is loving, and he tells us how. John 3, 16, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. The way to right standing before God is not good works. The way to right standing before God is not avoiding sin. The way to right standing before God is not church attendance. The way to right standing before God is only in Christ. And here, this is not a wiping away of your sin, although that's needed. It is Jesus' perfect righteousness credited to you. Credited to you. I'll say that again. Right standing before God is through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. What makes us right before God is not just friendship with Christ. It's not affinity with Jesus. It's not that we belong to the right club or have a secret handshake or know the code. You know the code. What makes us acceptable to God is based on who is acceptable to God. And that is and will only ever be one person. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the only one who has right standing with God. And if we're to understand this, we need the Holy Spirit to convict us of that. For your kids at home, for you kids at home, kids here, it's like any good spy movie where you have this high-tech security system that has the retina scan and the fingerprint scan and the voice recognition. There's only one person that can get through that security system, and that's Jesus. It's like that with Jesus. We have to, in the words of Paul, put on Christ. We put him on. We wear him like a garment. He is our righteousness, not our initiation into a club. It's him and him alone. So in that security analogy, the only way you can get through that security is if you have that that person. And so what if you could put on that person and you could talk like that person and have that fingerprint and that retina of that person? And that's, that's what happens. We put on Christ. We put on his righteousness because it's not him who gets us into the club. It's him who is our righteousness. So where are you? Are you finding your right standing before God in Christ alone? Are you trusting being in Christ, in his righteousness for you, or are you trusting something else? A good test is to look back at your week. Do you feel better and more acceptable to God because you did your daily Bible reading? Because you didn't fall into the same vice sins that you typically do? Do you feel like this week I'm more acceptable to God? Or how about the opposite? Are you coming into church today looking back at your week and saying, 
gosh darn it. Maybe you don't say that. Maybe it's worse. But gosh darn it, I messed up again. I didn't do my daily readings. I, I, I sinned in the, the way that I continually sinned. And do you feel like you're less acceptable to God because of that? Now, go, don't get me wrong. There's obedience that's a fruit of our conversion. And the Lord calls us to that fruit and to that obedience. But that is not what makes us right before God. What makes us right before God is our being in Christ. And Jesus says here, the Holy Spirit will convict us of that righteousness that Jesus has right standing before God. And in him and in him alone do we have that righteousness where we can stand before God. So the Holy Spirit convicts us about sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us about righteousness. And the third and final thing Jesus says the Holy Spirit convicts us of and convicts the world of is judgment. And here again we see the clue, the explanation Jesus gives in verse 11. He says about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. And I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to close this quickly. But he says the ruler of the world, and he, he mentions him a few times in John. He says 1231, now this is the judgment of the world. The ruler of this world is to be cast out. Uh, John fourteen thirty. I no longer t- talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. The ruler of this world whom Jesus is talking about is Satan. And he says that Satan ultimately will be judged. Again, if we have this view of the cross and resurrection in view, Jesus says Satan's going to be judged on the cross. See, the Jewish leaders thought Jesus was going to be judged on the cross. But Jesus says, no, the Holy Spirit will convict the world that during that cross, during my death and resurrection, who's actually judged is Satan. The ruler of this world has been judged. I'm not going to read the whole story, uh, but it's like Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, if you've seen it. When Aslan goes to the stone table and he dies, right? He, they think, the witch thinks, the lion's dead, right? The lion died. But the lion, spoiler alert, uh, rises from the dead. And he says, Aslan says, the witch thought she knew the deep magic, but there is a magic deeper which she still did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked back further into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself, death itself would start working backward. That's, that's what Jesus says here. And we can get into it more. I'd love to, to do more. We were out of time. But he says that judgment ultimately at the cross was not Jesus' judgment. It was Satan's judgment. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of that. But also the Holy Spirit convicts us that God is the one who judges. He evaluates. He evaluated Jesus. And he vindicates Jesus as righteous. In the same way, God the Father will judge us. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a day when we will be evaluated before God and our moral standard of, uh, an objective moral standard of right and wrong. And what God says is that only those who fit his perfect standard, who is Jesus, will pass that judgment. And so where are you today? Are you like Olaf the snowman in Frozen 1 who thinks when summer comes, it's going to be great, right? Winter's a great time to stay in and cuddle, but put me in summer and I'll be a happy snowman. 
Right? That's what he says. And the sad thing is there's so many people, so many of us today, who think that day of judgment is a great thing. But it may not be a great thing. It will be a terrible day if you are not in Christ. And so where are you today? Are you in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? Do you find your righteousness in Christ? Are you uh, aware of your sin of rejecting Christ? Have you turned from that? And are you trusting in Christ? Are you finding your righteousness not in your good works, not in the things that you do, but trusting in Christ alone? Looking forward to that day of judgment, not because you think you're good enough, but because you are in Christ and in Christ alone. Today, our application is just that, is just to repent, turn from sin, and to believe. I want to pray. I want to close in a song uh, singing about the truth of the gospel this wondrous mystery of the gospel that has been revealed by the Holy Spirit to us, what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 